0: Hello everyone, my name is Grace and my name is Maeve and welcome back to The Systemic Stage, the podcast where we discuss how we can change the theatre and how the theatre can change us. For this episode, we are joined by Dr. Scott Proudfit to discuss devising and collective collection, as well as the role of mentorship and pedagogy as forms of activism in the theatre. Dr. Scott Proudfit is an associate professor of English and the coordinator of the drama and theater studies at Elon University, our alma mater. He acts as a, a research mentor to many students, including our very own Maeve back in the day, and teaches a handful of super cool classes at Elon from Shakespeare and including one on the AIDS play, which we dive into further in this interview. He's a whiz at pretty much all things theater, and Maeve and I can personally attest that he's a phenomenal teacher. I was super lucky to have him for a semester and an amazing mentor, and we were just giddy to have him on our podcast and share all of his wonderful insight with you. Enjoy! (laughs) Well, thank you, Scott, for being on our podcast. Aren't you a sight for sore eyes? We're so excited to have you on. Literally, so excited! And excited I to be here. Cannot wait to uh, talk to you all about what you do because I only took one class with you. Maeve, how many classes did you? I don't know. I I, I know Maeve knows you a little I bit took more.
1: Five. Oh my God. classes, <laughs> And then I also had Scott as my mentor. So there, I saw Scott oh. like four times a week, every week. <laughs> he
0: probably is happy I graduated, not oh, seeing my not face all. all the time. <laughs> that's wonderful. What an amazing mentor to have. But mm-hmm. like, you know, both, both Maeve and I know like what an amazing professor you are and how eloquent and how insightful and wise you are. So we, we're like, we're just like giddy to have you on our podcast. So thank oh, you. That's very <laughs>
2: kind of you. Thank you.
0: You are currently, um, as we just mentioned, an associate professor of English and the coordinator of drama and theater studies at our alma mater, Elon University, but you also have an extensive CV of experience in the theater before your time at Elon, and you've done... Significant amount of work in the device theater and collective creation. Um, can you tell us a bit about what devising is and your experience with the Actors Gang and the and uh, the Factory Theater in Los Angeles and like all of the things uh, it, um, surrounding that um, with the Iron is it Irondale Ensemble Project Irondale, in New York? Yeah, yeah. tell yeah. us tell us about that.
2: You know, I'm I'm super old. Um, and so I had a long career before I started academia. So to, to go through all of the different um, theater companies make, I worked with and all of the different devices. Go into the
0: depths did, of your we, memory.
2: We, we pick up our whole hour. So, but I'll give you the highlights. So I'll okay, tell you like, cool. briefly, like, the highlights. So. Yeah, right out of college, uh, almost right out of college, I started working for Irondale Ensemble Project. And Irondale Ensemble Project is still uh, in operation in New York City. You can still go see their shows, and I encourage you to go see them. And the the same two gentlemen who ran it when I was there still run it uh, Terry Grease and Jim Neeson. And so I go see their stuff. They're awesome. They're a a socialist theater company that does uh, um, both repertory pieces and new pieces, devised pieces. So I think the first experience I had with Devise Theater, was probably working on a show in uh, 1994 called You Can't Win. when um, it was based on uh, the memoirs of uh, this uh, criminal named Jack Black from the early 20th century. Um, and he wrote his memoirs and we used those memoirs to create this piece called You Can't Win. And it was very like anti-establishment piece obviously, right, coming from the theater company. And so that's, uh, that's I think the first time I, I I uh, experienced device theater. Now, mostly I was the administrator for the company. So I was working on that show and worked on other shows with them, but I was also writing grants for them and making sure everybody got paid, et cetera, et cetera. But that was my first uh, foray into device theater. I think it might've been a little bit in college, but that's the first I really remember, but I really got into it when I um, was with uh, started training with the actors gang in Los Angeles and working with um, this amazing director named Tracy Young. And Tracy had learned, had been doing devising herself for many years, but had also picked up a lot from visits from the City Company, S-I-T-I. And City Company was uh, visiting Los Angeles then. uh, They started in 1998 and then would come out basically every summer for an intensive. And I started taking those intensives with City and also working with the actors gang. Um, And so I did... A bunch of productions with the gang and a a little bit with Cornerstone Theatre Company, working on this production called Zones. Um, And that's, uh, you know, that's that's the majority of stuff I did through about 2002 or 2003 about. And then I went back to grad school. So that's.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Really quickly, can you define devised theater for us? Absolutely. Um, for those who don't know. Yeah. yeah. So,
2: devised theater is um, creating a piece of theater, uh, usually from an idea, right? You don't have mm-hmm. a full script in advance. Now, that's the, the typically what devised theater is. You can, however, create a piece of devised theater using a script that you pull apart and put back together. So sometimes there is a script at the beginning of the process. But historically, it's typically been you go into a room with a group of co-creators and you make a piece of theater based simply on a group of ideas. Sometimes those ideas come from one person. Sometimes they come from many. So collective creation often has a relationship with devised theater. But there are devised theater pieces that are completely, you know, one artistic person in charge running the entire show. Um, But yeah, devised theater is, is creating theater without a script guiding the process, typically.
0: Yeah, and it's usually pretty, like, minimalistic and um, sort of abstract.
2: It can be, right? So it can be, but there are other, you know, some devised theater pieces are really within, like, the psychological realist realm, and they're, you know, based on super concrete uh, people and narratives, and they follow it, you know, and you might not even know that they had been devised in a certain way unless someone told you. Yeah, it depends on the aesthetic of the theater company.
1: And even like we, uh, it, for one of the drama and theater studies departmentals, we did an exercise, a workshop for device theater. And it was based on like kind of the, all of the um, performances were based off of a real story of a murder from like 1929 in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, so it was really rooted in, in, uh, realism, but then like you could tell each group kind of took it their own way. Um, so I think that's cool. That's an ex- example know. of, of not always being abstract.
2: And that comes straight from City Company and from Tracy Young's work, right? Uh, Tracy would often start like this work, uh, this one show I worked on with her dream play started with uh, the story of this guy, Scott Folater, who murdered his wife in Arizona and then claimed that he was sleepwalking. So it started with this case that there was tons of text on, right? We had all of the information from the trial, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Tracy was also interested in exploring um, the relationship between Freud and Jung. And so she said, like, I want to tell this story and I want to tell a later story. How can we combine these two things? And so, so it was based on that. But then we really tore all those things apart and made them ingredients in these compositions that we would create to sort of uh, perform for Tracy, she would then take those compositions, pick out what she liked, but then write the script completely on her own. Right? That was not collective creation at all. That was just Tracy sitting down and writing it at the end of the process. And those processes are always different in devised theater. Like, who actually writes things down? If they write things down,
0: interesting. I okay. I well, I went to. I am. Um, my experience with devised theater is pretty um, exclusive to when I did Governor School. Um, here in North Carolina, my junior year of high school, and I had, and I mean, you're laughing, but I, I, it was it was one of the most uh, you know amazing experiences yeah, no, of I'm my sure life. You know, yeah. What is um, for, what is Governor's School? Oh, what is Governor's School? It's <laughs> it's basically like it's a it's a summer program where they take a bunch of different they're almost always rising junior no rising seniors um in high school and they they had there's like different concentrations so i went for drama but you could also go for english or for math or for dance or for mm. french or for music chorus things like that and you it was like a pretty rigorous process to get in I was gonna say, it's like smart in, kids camp
2: come on grace right yeah smart across. kids camp yeah. but okay. we That's were cool. a
0: bunch of we were a bunch of um they have one in virginia and in tennessee yeah. um <laughs> But we and they—they have one in Winston-Salem and here in Raleigh, and I went to um, the one in in Raleigh at Meredith College, Um, and. It was the most enlivening thing, yeah. um, enlivening piece of theater I'd ever done. And it was, I mean, ours was really abstract, which was why I, I mentioned that. Um, and it was about like the, the the effects of technology on society or something very like, you know, <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> existential like that. It was so cool. And, um, you know, most of our pieces were um, pretty influenced by... Um, like frantic assembly, if you know yeah, that group and yeah, of course. And, and the other names are escaping me, but I, you know, and, and then I, I haven't done it since. And I don't know why. Cause it, I, I remember it being, you know, I so rooted in, in what I am as a core, you know, in the core of my artistry, Um, but... And Frantic Assembly has a
2: book, like, if if listeners are interested in, like, well, how can I do this process if I don't have somebody guiding it, you can get a book mm -hmm. by Frantic Assembly that is a great book um, for looking into it, but there's also a book called The Viewpoints Book by Anne Bogart and Tina Landau, and those are two good places to start, like, if you're just interested in geez, I want to do devised theater, I, I've got a group of people, but who's going to lead it? Well, try checking out both of those books, both Frantic Assemblies books and, uh, and the Viewpoints book, and start with those, because they really take you through the process. Two different processes, but to, two cool oh, ways to start. yeah.
0: That's wonderful. We did Viewpoints. Yeah, we'll, we'll mention that in, in, our, in our list of resources for this yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay, awesome. Well, um, so we wanted
1: to talk about how you have used devising as a form of activism. Because um, we know you do a lot of your scholarly work on devising. You've taught many courses in it. You have clearly a lot of experience. So I'm curious if you have ever, um, you know, done it for uh, activism.
2: You know, uh, the the work that was being done at Irondale had a particular agenda, political agenda, right? And you can't win, had a political agenda and everything they do does. Uh, that's That's what that theater company was about. Um, the Actors' Gang and a Cornerstone, to a lesser degree, had agendas, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Tim Robbins, the, the guy who founded the gang, um, is, encourages overtly political pieces. Um, and Tracy's pieces were often about gender. So um, among many other things, but uh, one of the things that she addressed in this great show, Hysteria, which was one of the first things I saw by Tracy was all about gender. So they are all, I think, political on some level. Does devised theater have to be political? No, I don't think it does. Um, uh, But coincidentally, or maybe because of my own tastes, I ended up with a number of theater companies that were very political. Now I also worked with a theater company called the The factory um, and that the theater company was not political at all. They were a late night Chicago theater, um, and they did shows um, just to make people laugh. And I loved working with them too. And some of the work there was was sort of collective creation, was that kind of work. But there was no political agenda. So it doesn't necessarily have to be. Now, if you read some of these books that I've worked on, right? So I worked on three different books for Palgrave. Uh, they're a history of collective mm-hmm. creation collective creation in contemporary performance and women collective creation and devised performance. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at those books, they will definitely make the argument that it's not coincidental that so much of devised theater and specifically devised theater that's working from uh, um, a theater company that's interested in collective creation is going to have a political uh, viewpoint that's about making sure everyone's voice is heard in some way, right? It's a super mm-hmm. democratic process to create the theater. And so yeah, It's really
0: collaborative too. Yeah.
2: And so it's, yeah. It's, it's typically putting forth a point of view that society should be more like this theater company, right? We, what we, sh- we want to start this thing here, but we hope it to be a seed that can change the world and make the world more like this theater right yeah and so it is political in that sense i think
0: that's what i love about devised theater is that like you can it's basically theater that's creating something out of nothing you know and it's if you have an idea i don't um, i don't know what what's my idea like we need to clean up the oceans right you can create a bunch you can if you have all you need is a couple more actors and you can you know still create a really meaningful piece of theater uh, like under the umbrella of the devised theater art form is that
2: do you agree with that absolutely right that yeah and oftentimes it's It's just an idea, right? You'd come Mm -hmm. in just with an idea, something that you want to explore with the group. And then there's different ways of exploring it, right? And there's different degrees to which it's being creative, collect, uh, being uh, uh, um, collectively created too, right? Some devised theater processes are really non hierarchical. They're really involving everybody sort of equally and some aren't. And they can still be political, regardless of the politics of the company too.
0: Yeah. Do you, um, would you, I, this is just a thought that I had, you know, you know, the play Indecent by Paula Vogel. Of course you do. Um, is that, would you consider that like a, like, well, it's not devised because it's like very, but, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like the, the, I, the structure of that show is, is very, um, very ensemble driven. Do you know what I mean? Um,
2: Absolutely, she seems to be writing for that kind of company, and she's also in that piece and in other pieces. She's done collaborating as a writer with other writers in ways that look like collection creation, right? creation, right? Which I think yeah. is really interesting. Like Carol Churchill sometimes works um, with theater companies where it really is—you know, she's got a group of actors in the room and they create the piece of, together, like Mad Force, where she worked with this group of students. But then other times. Her work looks like it is uh, a work of collective creation because she 's quoting from all of these different sources it 's mm. almost as if through her quotation she 's collaborating right. with other groups right individually so I think it can I think both those things can be a type of collaboration
1: so speaking of collaboration, I wanted to talk about um the contemporary play reading and
0: discussion series at elon really quickly um can uh, well just because I, I need clarification on this yeah. what is the um the uh uh is there a distinction between collective col- collective collaboration and device theater
2: so or there is are they like right the same? so collective creation and device theater seem to go hand in hand but they're not necessarily the same thing okay so, some people have argued that all theater is a form of collective creation. But uh, for a long time, historians said, well, no, it's specifically something that happened in the 1960s in a, the US and Europe, right? And there was a number of theater companies like the Open Theater and the Living Theater. And that was specifically collective creation because that work looked really non hierarchical, right? It was about let's get rid of producers, let's get rid of the playwrights, let's get rid of the directors and just create as a group completely without a hierarchy, right? But if you look at these books that Catherine Sisoyeva and I worked on together, and then many other scholars as well have written on this, that really collective creation is any time um, in the modern theater, and we only look at the modern theater, um, when uh, a group of uh, performers get together and try to work in a way that gives people in the room more voice than they had before, right? So. Susoyeva's work, this woman I worked with, will go back to uh, folks like uh, the Moscow Art Theater and the way that in uh, getting those actors to uh, be in charge of what they were doing as uh, in their performances was a form of collective creation on one level because it was empowering them and giving them tools that meant they were less dependent on producers and directors right so collective creation you can find it in all kinds of different theater it just is more visible in work that's coming out of uh, groups that don't have a clear hierarchy
0: does that help grace yes thank you okay. thank you thank you i know i was just like so, sure, I, I i i couldn't move on without knowing what
1: it was It's it no also good for our listeners to understand the difference too yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah because they do
2: often get conflated those two terms but they're really different like you can do device theater and it can be not collective creation at all it can be one person in charge of the whole thing and that does happen and oh. some wonderful pieces come out of that yeah you know? for sure
0: okay now Maeve, you are welcome okay. yeah i have like a zillion
1: questions because i know You know, some good questions to ask because I've had the privilege of knowing you for a while. (laughs) So I would like to get through as many as we can in our short time. No we're um, zooming through them. So in 2017, you, uh, Dr. Suzanne Scheuer, and Professor Kim Shively, whom we have interviewed before, uh, collaborated to create the Contemporary Play Reading and Discussion Series at Elon, which has received national recognition in the American Theater Magazine. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the series and some of the works you have featured?
2: You know, uh, uh, Suzanne and Kim really brainstormed this one. I mean, they came to me having already had the idea. And so I got to give them credit for that. And they came to me and said, look, uh, we want to expose our students to, uh, plays that are not necessarily being done on the main stage for a whole number of reasons, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Some of these plays we just uh, aren't able to cast, or they are new playwrights um, whose works perhaps aren't even available to produce yet, right? We want to do new and recent work um, from underrepresented authors, not only on our stages, but on all the commercial stages in the U.S., and so that was the idea behind it right that our, our students are missing out on this work um and so yeah that's what that was what was behind it and then we did I mean we started in two thousand seventeen and we did about three plays a semester and these were readings that we would get together with students and they would read the plays uh, together and then we would discuss them afterwards um and uh, yeah, and it was a way to you know it I gotta say it has completely fed into my scholarship because i there's plays that I loved but when I heard heard them read I loved them 10 times more and just decided to like publish work on it right so like uh oh, that's amazing Brandon, Brandon <laughs> Jacobs Jenkins Appropriate I, I thought that play was awesome but when I heard it read I really fell in love with it and and I'll have a piece out in theater history studies this winter about uh based on Appropriate because it was something that I was like once I'd heard it I really wanted to write something on it, so it's it's helped me too. I, I I know it's helped the students, but you know, selfishly, it's really helped my work.
0: Yeah, I I love the play reading series. I I I mean, I would go whenever my rehearsals would allow under my just. To- insane BFA schedule that I kept up. You know, um <laughs> I remember you
2: being there, Grace. Yeah, I, I, I really there. tried.
0: <laughs>
1: um, it used to make me so sad because I had orchestra rehearsal every I single remember Monday. That too. Oh, I used to give you a hard time about it. Cello <laughs> Every single Monday. <laughs> and the only time for the entire three years that I was there for this series, it was always on a Monday night. <laughs> oh, I was
2: so oh, sad I, I to like, I remember two. always asking you and you were always feeling bad about it.
0: Oh man. Yeah. 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 That is a shame because they were, they are, they were so fruitful. And uh, even if, uh, you know, it was, it was a super casual environment, you know, you just kind of show up and then anybody, you know, who wants to read can read and then you read the play and then off more often than not, it would spark a really cool conversation mm-hmm. afterwards that could have lasted for hours, you know, yeah. about whatever the play was about and the different themes. And often the plays that you guys chose, you know, had different forms of representation. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, for us, you know, Elon students who yeah. are mostly white, mostly right. privileged, you know, yeah. um, are it was a different way for us to... Um, you know, think perspectively on the themes that um, were presented in the play. And then, you know, think deeper um, within those and have a safe space to talk about it. And that's something that I really valued um, with them. And are you guys still doing it? Oh, Um, yeah. Even with the pandemic? Okay, cool. So
2: this past (laughs) fall, we did virtual readings. We kept it up for the fall. And we did um, Jocelyn Baia's uh, Schoolgirls or the African Mean Girls play. Um, we did Dominique Morisot's Skeleton Crew, and we did Larissa Fast Horse's The Thanksgiving Play. Um, but we found that, you know, people were getting burned out on uh, reading plays on Zoom. It's just, it just doesn't have the same energy. Yeah. And we have this new theater, uh, theater group that's run by students called New Works, which is reading works written by students. And so we thought for the spring... We would have those be the regular readings okay so we're doing that every month Uh and instead have the contemporary play reading uh, for this just this semester be uh virtual meetings with uh playwrights and dramaturgs and performers and so we have three but also three three folks that um come from underrepresented groups right so we had first we've already had andres uh, muniar Uh, We're going to have Camilla Bush, who is coming up, who's uh, the literary manager for Portland Center Stage. And then we're going to end (laughs) the semester with Eric Sharp, um, who uh, uh, has taught at Theater uh, Moo in Minneapolis and has had his plays uh produced there so you know so we're, cool. instead we're getting people together and talking to these people about like well how do you, how does how do people pick a play for like uh, andres was able to talk about he worked for the lark uh play development center in nyc and served as a judge for the pony playwriting award that's p-o-n-y that's like a big playwriting award and so our students get to you know find out like hey how do you select like the plays that win this what are you interested in that kind of right. thing right so it's still helping people uh, explore uh, plays, but just from a different angle this semester.
0: Yeah, that's kind of like, you know, one of the blessings in disguise of our new platform yeah. that we now all communicate in, which is Zoom and Google Meets, is that now we have like found this window of opportunity to speak with, you know, people that you might not have you know, thought about connecting with. I totally but, think that's
2: true. And, and the access yeah. that they have, right, that, you know, to, to have flown in Andres to do this, you know, or to have brought in uh, Camilla or Eric, right, would have been much more challenging at, right. you know, right. just simply financially. But the fact that we can do it through Zoom and students are used to doing it that way now, yeah, it, it, that is one of the few positives about the, <laughs> yeah, <pandemic> yeah. <laughs> the access we now have to these amazing people. Yeah. I also yeah. think
1: what's really cool about the, uh series is like especially with the readings is understanding i think as a student that there is so much more than just the canon like when you're taking classes you have to read the canon you have to understand the canon but to have you know faculty members and and mentors who are committed to you know showing you that hey like this is what society has determined is important for you to read but there is Mm -hmm. so much more out there that you need to know that that you can grow from and i think that is so so important and and one of the things i took from having faculty members and mentors who cared about contemporary uh issues contemporary writers and um underrepresented groups Yeah.
2: yeah yeah i think that's right right i mean it's a and i gotta say again it benefits us as much as it benefits the students. It's so yeah. wonderful to hear these works read. And it, and it really has led to, I mean, the two of the next things I'm thinking about working on were both the plays we read, right? I'm, I'm uh, working on a, a piece on Jackie Sibley's Drury's uh, Fairview, right? Fairview,
0: is, yeah, Amazing, yes. <laughs> right?
2: Amazing play.
0: That's so good. And then, good. Um,
2: and then a, a, a play by Raji Joseph, uh, Describe the Night. Right, which was another one we read in 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 this group, and so yeah, the next two things I'm working on are plays we read in this group. They make me so passionate about it when I hear it read by students.
0: Amazing. Oh, that's wonderful! Yeah, it just sort of <laughs> reiterates how plays are meant to be heard. And yeah, yeah. absolutely right.
2: I think that's true.
1: So, um, so speaking of, I know you just finished uh, winter term. I guess not really. I mean, that was like a month ago. <laughs> That's crazy. What is time during? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at Elon, there is, uh, for those who didn't attend Elon, um, there's a January term, a winter term that is a three-week intensive course. Um, And during that time, you often teach a course called the AIDS play, um, which is an extremely impactful and important course. And we wanted to talk to you about it because it – deals with the plays of the AIDS crisis. And for a lot of students, myself included, because I was privileged to take this class, it was really the first time. It books quickly. Keep going, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It It (laughs) It really was the, it is the first time that a lot of students learn about the AIDS crisis in class. Like most, it kind of gets glossed over for a lot of us. Um, So it's super important. So I just wanted to talk a bit about the course. Um, So can you tell us about it, what you study, why you chose to to um, create it?
2: Yeah. You know the the class looks at whether indeed there was a a genre um, that goes along with the label that a lot of plays got um, from the late 1980s and throughout the 90s. And that label was the AIDS play, right? And critics often used it to say, oh, this is an AIDS play, and it's a funny AIDS play, or this is an AIDS play. And typically, you know, it's tragic, as we thought it would be, et etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So that label was very common at that time. And so this class really started with the idea, well, was that truly a genre? Was there a genre, right? A group of plays that we can indeed say were AIDS plays? And what does that even mean? And so that's what it started with. Um, but Really, the impetus, and, and Mavis already sort of indicated this, is my feeling that um, these group of plays, I mean, it's perhaps true that in no period of U.S. history uh, has the commercial theater scene been so directly engaged with current events, right? In mm, the 80s mm-hmm. through the 90s, the plays that were making it even to Broadway were dealing with this issue of AIDS. Uh, and uh, so it was an incredible period for political theater and yet because it was so tied to its time um for a long time uh these plays weren't being produced right yeah they they, they, uh, were no longer in repertory because they seemed like well they're museum pieces what's the point of doing them and so I felt like my students didn't know the names they just didn't know these plays right at all yeah and so you know I think the my fear of this and my worry about this is many other people my age's fear, too, because we've now seen a bunch of revivals of this work. Right. When I started teaching this class, suddenly we had stuff like the normal heart being brought back, boys in the band coming back. Right. These things are being brought back now. They're being revived. But the, Im- the impulse behind it originally was like no one is is paying attention to this group. It's just gathering dust. These group of amazing plays because people think they're just about their their time period and have nothing to say to us now. And I wanted to see if that's true. I wanted to see if it really did have something to say to uh, this current generation. And I think it did.
0: That's amazing. Ooh, that yeah. like lights a fire in me <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> I mean,
1: I think about, that was one of the most important courses I've taken at Elon, just in understanding my um, privilege and my ignorance. Um, and the public school system not yeah. teaching me anything, anything about the me either. Yeah. And,
2: you know, look, it's considered recent history and high school teachers have a tough job in term in most, you know, particularly in public schools. Right. They have to stick to a curriculum that gives them very little time to give to, to, eat, to t- teach anything after World War Two. Well geez, if they're are they even gonna get to that? It's it's really a challenge, right? Unless the curriculum changes significantly, those teachers aren't given much chance to teach recent what's called recent history, which is now pretty old, right?
0: Yeah. It's you know, aside from it being, you know, recent history it's also you know the aids epidemic is is deeply tied to homophobia which is which is so prevalent um even now i mean i went to catholic high school and i i didn't know you know the um uh the the catastrophe of the disease until i was in college you know and 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 You know, to think that I went through twenty years of my life to know not know about like um, a a pandemic that happened in the eighties was you know well you know you know but you don't really know until um, until somebody teaches you about it and I think that's there's there's a there's a reason why it's swept under the rug and I think probably that reason was is because it was swept under the rug even then you know I've only taught this
2: class twice but there've already been Five or six students who've come up to me and said during the, the course, you know, I was talking to my parents about this, and they said, Oh yeah, um your uncle died of this.
0: Or yeah.
2: right, your cousin died of this, and that's it had crazy. never been discussed in the family. And and oh, I guess we should have talked to you about it before. And that's amazing that those conversations had not happened yet, but also yeah. amazing that they were happening because of the course, because you know, and it's yeah. and
1: it's well, wild and it, you know, it Yeah, we
2: cheer up, you know, like when I when I was in the class, you know, and these people would come forward and say, I have to tell you, I had this really crazy conversation with my parents and um, learned this whole part of my family history that I didn't know. Wow. And that's tragic and wonderful that it happened finally.
1: Right. My parents grew up around the suburbs of New York City and they um, would obviously go into the city all the time and they knew a lot of people in the city. And I talked to both of them about it and it stimulated a conversation with them and they said the same thing like, they, ha- they knew people and right. they- it never really like occurred to them to share with us. That's right. And it, was just an int- it sparked such interesting conversation that I don't think I ever would have had if I didn't take this yeah. course. Yeah. And yeah. there's this book that you had us read. Um, I'm totally forgetting the name, but it was the big one, the really thick one, the history one.
2: Right. It's and the band played on. Right. It's Randy Schultz's uh, sort of oh. great history of of uh, really the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic.
1: And it, w- it is so good. And you only had us read a little bit of it. And it is like on my to be read list because I want to read the whole thing. It is so well written. It tome. is so interesting. Yeah. It is. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's also a good resource if you're interested in learning more about it.
2: Absolutely. And an easy to read book, like Mabel tell you, like it's a, it's a, it's a compelling read and, and, and just a fascinating uh, history book. Yeah. Really wonderful book.
1: And, and it was especially interesting to take it during January, 2020, right before the outbreak of COVID.
2: Right. Yeah. So this is what I've heard from students the most subsequently is I've heard from a lot of uh, students who've emailed me and saying, how weird is it that we studied, um, for example, Fauci in our class, right? Mm-hmm. Fauci was a major uh-huh. figure in the AIDS epidemic, and he made a lot of horrible mistakes. Um, Maeve probably remembers, right? Fauci was not a hero by any means when it came to the AIDS epidemic. This is a guy that, that made some really poor decisions. And now to have him be, again, a public figure and dealing with another pandemic, Um, was really uh, uh, shocking for my students, but it gave them a context that they felt other people didn't have, and they were really appreciative of it, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. And then also to see the parallels. I mean, again, it was... an administration
2: that didn't care about the (laughs) pandemic, right? I mean, the parallels between uh, the the way that uh, Reagan's presidency dealt with the AIDS crisis and the way that Trump uh, uh, presidency dealt with uh, this pandemic... Absolutely, Maeve. Right, you've got this tragic right. context. Sadly, that you can see, right, what's going on, and it's, it, it, it yeah, uh, it's. It was something that students were emailing me about quite a bit.
1: Yeah, and and it, it was really frustrating to me because it's such recent history, and it's something that is so so closely parallel that it it felt like how are you not seeing this how are you not understanding that we are repeating history it is happening again and you're just going to let it happen you're going to let thousands million or whatever thousands hundreds of thousands of people die hundreds of thousands of people have died because of the administration
2: and i think you you put your finger on it because people (laughs) just don't know right and that right yeah the greatest form of activism, since this is a show about activism, is, in my opinion, education. Mm-hmm. Education is the greatest. Amen
0: form of to that. That's, yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> now,
2: if we lived in a nation that really true, truly appreciated its teachers um, on every level and paid them um, uh, the way we pay people who do, you know, business, right? <laughs> uh, we would be a much uh, uh, more empathetic, um, fair. Uh, nation, right? Mm-hmm. Education is yeah. the place to start, right? If you want to be an activist, get your teachers paid more money, take care of your teachers, right? That's the way things are going to change. It's only through education. If you want to be an activist, yeah. start with education.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And amending the curriculum absolutely, to, right? Um, to fit the times. I mean, my mom is a fourth grade teacher and she talks about this all the time yeah. about how we are our curriculum right now is archaic in terms right. of mm-hmm. um, in terms of addressing the systemic issues within our education. Um, and
2: the and, reality yeah. is, the money money will change those things. Money mm-hmm. allows us to teach new curriculum. Money al- gives us the equipment to teach science better. Right? Money is behind all, will will improve the education of every child in America, and it will create a generation who won't make the same mistakes again. Right?
1: Right. So speaking of um, teachers, in 2019 (laughs) you
0: got me feeling some kind of way. (laughs) Okay. Uh, In
1: 2019, you unsurprisingly won an Elon Excellence in Teaching Award, a recognition that truly hardly covers the adoration that your students hold for you.
2: (laughs) I can personally.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, you are a mentor for your students, both in your class and outside of class, and after graduation. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about how mentorship has affected you as a scholar, as an activist, and as a person in general.
2: Look, mentorship is a, a special thing at Elon. And it's one thing that Elon, I have to say, does well, right? I, I could be critical <laughs> yeah. of Elon. Um and, and I yeah. have, but that's one thing that they do well is they create the space and they um compensate their professors for mentorship. And I am a very appreciative of that because In these one-on-one relationships, you get to delve into research projects that not only help your scholarship, but um, change the curriculum that you teach ultimately, right? The project I worked on with Maeve was in Irish drama, and I read a whole bunch of pieces that I hadn't read in years or had never read ever, and it's preparing me to ultimately then teach a course in the winter in a few years on Irish drama, right? Right now, I'm working with a student, and we're looking at um, Latinx drama. Now, again, I've read a lot of these plays, but it's been a long time, and, but other plays I've never read, and it's going to prepare me to teach a course in uh, Latinx theater and drama, right? So, these mentorship experiences at Elon are special in that you get to work often with, with a student for more than one year on a project and really delve into things that you don't know as well as perhaps you should, right? And it not only changes what you teach in the future, but it totally informs your scholarship moving forward. So, again, mentorship is one of these things where I know my students get something out of it, but I get a lot out of it, too. I really do. So, yeah, uh, mentorship's at the center of of what I do at Elon, and and Elon does do it well, I have to say.
1: And, of course, you know working one-on-one with a student and mentoring them and having it affect your coursework and your scholarship, then you turn around and you can teach many students, many people and make them less ignorant of things. So it's a full circle.
2: That's right. Right. So then when I get to teach that course in Irish drama or Latinx drama, right, it's totally going to expose this whole larger group to things. That's right. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Is that a new class that you're teaching this year about Irish drama? Oh, or? It not, it's
2: not just gonna be for another couple of years, Grace. I gotta oh. fit it in. Yeah, Am no. It, oh man. <laughs> yeah, it'll probably be in two thousand twenty-three. I know. It's crazy to plan that far ahead. But <gasps> Let me tell that's you
0: crazy. how angry I was when I saw that I that you were teaching a course on Chekhov and know. and Two other Don't playwrights. Don't remind me. And people came up to me because I'm like the t- the Chekhov itch, yep. right? And people were like, "Did you see that, like, Scott?" <laughs> and I was like, "Don't remind me. I'll be gone." Yeah. Like, so that was a course in um,
2: it was uh, Chekhov and then Annie Baker, who's another one of my on, you know, favorite playwrights. Right. So we, oh we read God. their works together. But really, it was about teaching uh, folks um, cultural materialism and Marxist theory. And that's really what you learn in the course, but you learn it through these two playwrights. And it was, it was one of my favorite courses I've taught. And it was just this past fall. Yeah, it was really great.
0: I just missed yeah. it. I, oh, my gosh. <laughs> See, the I, fury. <laughs> I was able to take
1: a similar course on psychoanalysis and um, right. Eugene O'Neill and Edward Albee. That's and right. uh, every single day, we would be in class and we'd all be like, my head what is happening <laughs> and then we finally got it and like as Scott will make fun of me for the rest of my career I'd be like hmm that sounds
2: Freudian but right that's right yeah. <laughs> but that's, but maybe that is the goal right is to give the mm-hmm. person a personal lens that they can choose to apply or not apply now you've got right. that lens and you will all oh, yeah. you know you might not even <laughs> be Able to turn it off, right? Can be, mm-hmm. can be frustrating, maybe. <laughs> but you've always got it at your fingertips to be like, I can do a Jungian or Freudian reading. I can do yes. a psychoanalytic reading anytime I need to because I know that stuff inside and out. And that is the purpose of that course, right?
1: Yeah. And that's tough stuff to do. Yeah. Totally tough stuff.
2: Right. So. And, you, and you can't learn it by reading just one thing by Freud or one thing by Jung or one thing by, right? You need to really delve into all of the different writers. Yeah.
1: And then to be able to apply them to, you know, real world place to be able to to take the information and then apply it is really owning the information that's right yeah yes yep great do you want to ask a question
0: (laughs) i've been asking the questions (laughs) i i'm just i'm listening i'm here for the ride i guess like (laughs) well i was i was gonna go back to the mentorship topic Um, and I, 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 I can't decide if I've completely lost my train of thought on this, but, you know, I also wanted to like sort of chalk it up to how Elon is a smaller school, you know, and there's this sort of mentorship. I didn't have a specific mentor, um, within my, um, within my collegiate career, but, you know, I had a, a, a bunch that were, um, not tied to a project. Um, but does that – do you think – well, this is this is, this is is kind of a random question. Does that sort of um, – is that related to how Elon is a smaller school, and is that sort of conducive to, you know, the schools of our size? That's right, or? and it's not only the school, yeah.
2: Grace, but it's also the program. So Drama and Theater Studies is a program that's mm. small enough that um, Dr. Suzanne Scheuer and I, who uh, pretty much run Drama and Theater Studies – get to develop a relationship with every major, right? Because we only have maybe seven or eight majors every year. And because of that, we can encourage majors uh, that during their four years, we want them to do research at least one semester. And so that means they'll be working with Suzanne or I at least once. Now, many of our majors happen to be Elon College fellows or honors students. So they have to do a two-year project. But if they're not right. they've got to do mm-hmm. at least a 499 they have to do one one semester with either of us. So we have the privilege not only of having a small school but a small program that allows us to do that kind of individual mentorship. And that's not always the case even at Elon. But yeah, I think it has to do with size, absolutely.
1: And yeah. and also you know, speaking of mentoring, you don't just mentor individual students, but you're also the faculty mentor for the Vagina Monologues production every year.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: so, um, so the Vagina Monologues every year is put on by the Effect Club, the Elon Feminists for Equality, Change, and Transformation. Mm-hmm. And it's a fundraiser for the Women's Resource Center in Alamance County, North Carolina. So I wanted to know, you know, you've been doing this every year. I don't know when it started, but... Um, you Know how is your experience working with young women for the vagina monologues affected your activism and your pedagogy?
2: Strange, right? I mean, I'm uh, a, a cisgender straight <laughs> male, um, and yet, uh, I have been the <laughs> here facu- you are,
0: the vagina monologues. <laughs> yeah, for, for eight years now. For eight years, I've been
2: the faculty advisor for affect the feminist uh, uh, group on campus. Uh, and it happened, I think, originally, uh, because uh Kirsten Ringelberg who is still at, at Elon University uh, asked me to uh to do it when I first arrived at Elon um because I had a theater background because she knew I was a feminist uh and so and because I was working with the women's uh, what was called the women's and gender studies program at the time is now women's genders and sexuality studies uh and so yeah I just got tapped uh, from Kirsten and uh and and loved it so much and loved working with uh, the women that uh, put together Effect every year, it's a, it's a group that can feel very left out uh, at Elon. Um, to call yourself a feminist um, is still a strange thing for many women on our campus, and, and that's sad but true, right? And hmm. so even a work like Vagina Monologues, which in many ways is dated, Um, Mm -hmm. right? And and it still is revolutionary to a lot of students' ears. And that's why it's important to keep doing it at a place like Elon. And that's the group in general. The things that may seem um, understood by uh, people who have had the education, right, is still radical to people who have not. And that's why effect is so important. And to um, proudly call yourself a feminist is so important. And so the work that they do is is amazing. There's no group I'm more proud of than the effect people every year. The fact that they um, just exist and are constantly out there putting that message out there on a campus that uh, doesn't always care about that message, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes yes. Yeah. does and, and many faculty do and many staff members and many students do, but many don't too. And so they're very brave, I think.
1: Mm, I remember ta- talking very nonchalantly because I I am very much a feminist and I'm very used to the language that goes with that. Yep. I was in the production of the Vagina Monologues my freshman year and I was sitting having lunch with a friend and I said like oh yeah I have to go to rehearsal for the Vagina Monologues and he's like the what and I was like the Vagina Monologues and like a couple weeks later I have lunch with him again and he's like so how's the um the um that show going. And I was like, what show? And he was like, you know, the, the like, monologues one. And I was like, the mon- <laughs> he was like, the vagina monologues. I was like, you can say it. The vagina monologues. It's just a word. It's just a word. And he was like, horrified. And I was like, that is why we do this. <laughs> well, so we do unfortunately have to wrap up. I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you. So um, we're wondering if you have any projects that we can look forward to seeing from you in the future. I know you mentioned a couple of them, but if you've got any more to to tell us about.
2: I'll tell you. I'll tell you two. Yeah, I'll tell you a couple quick things. Right. I'm working on this book on 20th century drama and specifically Mm. on this idea that postmodernism starts in the 21st century right? Not in the 80s. So it's, it's rethinking uh, a new cool. kind of drama right. that happened along with the technological revolutions of the 21st century, right? You grew up in a very different world than I grew up in, and it's because of technology. And so this book is looking at that, how drama changed at the turn of the century and how a new, a true postmodern age started at that time. Okay, so that's a book. That's cool. Um, I'm teaching a not. solo performance class that's rocking right now, and I really cool. am excited about it. And so uh, we are—we're—it's 14 students, and we're do- meeting virtually. And they're creating pieces, talking, going back to the devised discussion at the beginning. They're oh. devising all their own work. So, if their last project, we, the last performance they did, they were—they chose a myth. They chose. Three images. They had uh, a list of ingredients they needed to include, like water and um, silence and uh, write three repeated gestures. And they had to then create a video that told the story or captured in some way that myth. And they they created it and they record it. And then we watch it together as a group and discuss each of these performances. And it is so much fun and is um, (laughs) something that has worked well with the virtual teaching right, because of the way we put it together. Super excited about that.
1: That is so cool.
2: (laughs) And then in terms of plays that I would recommend, I've got a few plays. uh, Annie Baker's John, which I taught in the fall. Annie Baker's John is a fascinating play. It is weird and creepy and wonderful. And I I just adore it. It's the other play I'm thinking about trying to write on because I'm just fascinated by it.
1: Is that Um, the one where they're in a a B&B? That's
2: right, a B and B. Yeah, yep. I love and, uh, that one. And uh, and the the woman in this relationship feels she's being haunted by this doll, this American yeah. girl doll that it's 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 just watching her. And it's about, I think it's I think it's a play about God and about the metaphysical, and and, and uh, it's a it's a fascinating play. Um, but mostly when I when I read for pleasure, I don't read plays or literature because I teach that stuff. So um, while I do teach graphic novels, I only do it rarely. And so graphic novels are the things I read for fun. And there's two great graphic novels. These are not new by any means, but I really recommend these. It's Nick Dernasso's Sabrina. Mm. Dernasso is D-R-N-A-S-O, and uh, Emil Ferris's. My favorite thing is Monsters. If you are not into graphic novels, check out either of those. They're both so good. Um, and Ooh. give graphic novels a chance. It's a great, it's a great uh, medium that's often dismissed by people. But mo, it's it's really beautiful fun. too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah
1: yeah awesome okay well thank you very much
2: that's <gasps> Thanks,
1: Scott. we always love talking oh. with you scott
2: <laughs> <laughs> It's really great seeing both of you. I miss you both. I wish you were in class. I wish you were just at Elon.
0: I know. We miss you dearly. And my face is is sore from smiling. This uh, this conversation has been wonderful and you are wonderful. And we can't thank you enough for being on this podcast of, of ours. Um, it Absolutely. means the
1: world to us.
2: <laughs> yeah. I was happy to do it.
1: Thank Yay.
2: you. Yay. Welcome. <laughs> Bye now.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of The Systemic Stage. This episode, we were honored to have such an insightful and revealing conversation with Dr. Scott Proudfit. If you felt the same way or even a different way, feel free to let us know. The goal of this podcast is always to foster productive conversation. We are eager to hear your insights and perspectives on the topics we discuss with our guests. Be sure to follow us on social media, including our Instagram at Systemic Stage Pod, our Twitter at Systemic Stage, and our Facebook page. We will link some more information on devising and collective creation, as well as all of the resources mentioned during this episode, on our website, thesystemicstage.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Our episodes are released bi weekly on Friday, so keep an eye out for our next one. Until then, stay safe, wear your mask, and we'll catch you next time right here on the Systemic Stage.